I'm Andy Merckx. You listen to The Bicycle Show on Resonance 104.4 FM. Yes. Children should play good together with one another. <laughs> well, you can play with me And you can hold my hand We can skip together Don't do Man, you can wear my mommy's shoes, put on my daddy's hat. You can even laugh at me, but don't you push me down. Don't you push me, push me, push me. Don't you push me down. Don't you push me, push me, push me. Don't you push me down. You can play with me. We can play all day. Well, you are listening to The Bike Show on Resonance 104.4 FM. My name's Kieran Yates. I'm standing in for Jack this week. And on the show this week, we'll be talking all about riding, riding long, long distances. And I'll be talking to a doctor of physics about um, how we actually manage to ride our bikes. Now, when I first did a report for the bike show nearly two years ago, I went off and did a piece on the London-Edinburgh-London Audax ride. And inspired by the people I talked to, I renewed my Audax UK membership and set myself the objective of completing the granddaddy of all long-distance bike rides, Paris-Brest-Paris. Well, this year is a Paris Brest Paris year, and to find out a little bit more about how I should be preparing for the, for the event, I caught up with Audex UK Secretary Richard Phipps, and I started by asking him how Paris Brest Paris began. Well, it started off by Pete Giffard in 1891 as a demonstration of the practicality of cycling. Then it was a race. Gradually, it fell out of favour with the racing fraternity it was basically too long and it got taken over by the tourists and the first Brit started in 1966 Barry Parslow by 1975 there was qualification because it was getting bigger and bigger and it was a tourist mecca really is, is that why Audax UK became established very much so to allow for the qualification because the French wanted to have a low failure rate. They introduced a qualification of, first of all, a 600-kilometre ride, then an SR series. An SR series is? Well, that's a 600, 400, 300 and 200-kilometre ride uh, and that's, all within that, the same year. That's what I'm going to have to do this year to qualify. I'm afraid so. <laughs> right. You'll enjoy it, though. <laughs> uh, I wait to be convinced, but... Uh, uh, trust me, you'll enjoy it. Um, you, you said that it was started in 1891 to demonstrate the practicality of the bicycle. Yes. And Paris, Brest, Paris, how far is it? It's 1,200 kilometres, which is 750 miles in old money. For the actual event of Paris, Brest, Paris, how much time do I have to do that in? I, I could do it as a tourist in a couple of weeks, but there's a slightly different challenge. With, well, uh, random earth speed gives you a maximum of 90 hours, although there are options for doing it in 80 or 84 hours but 90 hours is the maximum which is about 15 kilometers an hour average 
but that takes in all things like sleeping, eating, and all the other things that uh, riders have to do. Now, to get to Paris, I'm going to have to do this SR series, the series of 200, 300, 400, 600 kilometre events. I've yep. ridden up to 300 kilometres before yep. as an Ordex ride. What do I need to be doing different to prepare for um, the longer distances? Do I need to change any kind Not of... Not a lot, I don't think. A 200 and 300 are more or less the same. You just keep going for longer. You don't have to be quicker, you just do it for longer. With the 400, there tends to be a bit of a quantum leap because you will then be going throughout the night. So, assuming that you've been happy with your equipment so far, go with trusted equipment, get some good lights, and you find that riders tend to bunch up at night for their own safety and protection, and uh, it makes route finding so much easier. But it's mainly a mental thing, and you just go through the night. If you've got company, it'll make the night go a lot better. And there are a lot of people who like riding through the night. If it's summer and a starlit night, it can be a wonderful experience. You you talked a little bit about equipment there in terms of um, bike and lighting. What kind of bike do I need for doing um, Ordex, the the very long-distance Ordex rides? Do I need to go out to the shop and buy a brand-new carbon fibre bike with all the latest uh, top-of-the-range Campagnolo group set on it? Or can I make do with just a regular um, touring bike? Well, you can go out and get a top-of-the-range one, but I would suggest that it's probably not the right thing. It'll be a racing bike, and it'll be uncomfortable on the longer distances. If you've got a touring bike that you're happy with, stick with it, and you'll be perfectly okay with it. People have ridden PBP, Paris, 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 on bikes, trikes, tandems, tandem trikes, recumbents, bikes and trikes, possibly four-wheel recumbents, Pedersons, which is an old uh, alternative design of bike, triplets, and a Moulton last time. Uh, That was, in fact, ridden by Chloe Williams, who was the youngest uh, female finisher, and she was British. And and I believe people have even done it on kick scooters as well. (laughs) Yes, there was uh, an elite athlete who was a Finnish guy, and he managed to be faster than uh, a lot of Brits, which uh, didn't endear him to them very much. <laughs> and what, what should I be eating in, in terms of preparation? Do I just need to be eating lots, or do I need to be really watching what I'm eating? Well, one of the things about doing the qualification is that you can get an idea of what works for you. What works for you on a 600 is likely to work for you on a 1200 as well. If you find that uh, you go well on donuts and coke, fine, go for it. If you find that you need a vegetarian diet, you'll probably struggle to find it, but try and go for that. Whatever works for you. Right, so, so it's very much sort yeah. of a personal experience and finding out for yourself what actually works. There's no really specific... Um, diets like sports scientists say you should eat this you should eat that and but when it comes to long distance riding you have to eat what you all you feel comfortable with eating that's right there are controls which will serve this purpose of proof of passage but also will have facilities for feeding you 
and they'll happen normally about every 50 miles or so, 80 kilometres, and get the food in there and bear in mind that you cannot run with the tank on empty. You have to eat. And we'll just have a quick break for some music and then we'll come back and talk about riding through the night. Shades of night are falling As the wind begins to sigh And the world is silhouetted Against the sky Richard Phipps, who is the Secretary of Ordex UK, uh, the Long Distance Cyclists Association for Great Britain. And uh, Richard, we were talking about um, some of the specifics of Ordex. Um, and obviously, doing the longer distances, I'm going to be riding through the night. Yes. Um, what is that like? And what? how much does um, sleep deprivation play a part in being a successful randonneur? You will have to get some sleep. In 90 hours, you can't go straight through without sleep. You can sleep at the controls, and you don't need that much sleep. In the short term, by which I mean anything up to a week, you can get by with catnaps here and there. But if you are feeling sleepy while you're riding, falling asleep at the handlebars, doing nothing is not one of your options. You have to get some sleep. Even if it's only 10 minutes, that might do you for however long you need to do to get to the next control. If you crash, you're out of the ride. End of story. I've read stories about people just falling asleep practically anywhere. Is that really what happens? (laughs) Uh, It does happen occasionally, but again... If you are well prepared, if you have got an idea of how your body reacts, you should be okay. So, so it sounds though a lot of um, doing the longer distances is um, a lot about finding out how you personally deal with 
the extremes. It is very much a voyage of self-discovery. A lot of people will say, 600 kilometres, 400 miles, I couldn't do that. But most of us said that before we started doing Ordax, and we gradually work up to it. And uh, it's amazing what we can do, and also very satisfying, especially the day after. <laughs> <laughs> when, when you're sleeping, mainly. <laughs> How much of doing Ordaxing is about the mental challenge rather than the physical challenge? There is a lot of it. First of all, you have to conquer the physical challenge, which is just to be comfortable on the bike. With increasing distances, you get used to riding that. But on the longer rides, you will find that you have a rhythm and sooner or later you'll have a bad patch which you will go through. What you don't realise the first time is that you will go through it. But once again, having got the experience, you will know that you will get onto a better frame of mind. You can push yourself through a bad patch and That's come back right, out yes. the other side and just be feeling absolutely fine again. And back You'll to be miserable you for a few minutes, but then you realise that all things must pass and <laughs> this is just one of them. If I do manage to qualify, what should I expect if I get to Paris? It is a ride like no other. In your introduction, you described it as the granddaddy of all Audax rides, and it certainly is. It's the longest going... It's the largest. There was a record field last time of 4,069 riders. Slightly more than 50% were non-French. And one of the things that will impress you is the scale of it. The headquarters is at a secondary modern school. And can you imagine the playing field just covered with bike stands and bikes? Equally, you start off at 10 o'clock at night or something like that, and all you see for the first 20 miles or so is red lights just going into the distance. The other thing that will impress you is the great hospitality and support of the French people. They're by the roadside clapping you on, supporting, shouting, allez, 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 at you to encourage you. They will offer you food, they will offer you drink, they're very supportive. Do, do you have any particular memories of completing Paris Press Paris yourself? Yes, I did it a couple of times. Uh, once I finished at three o'clock in the morning and I was greeted by a polite ripple of applause and I was very grateful. I wondered if they didn't have homes to go to. Following time, it was about two o'clock in the afternoon and then there was a festival atmosphere. It's carnival time. You go around the big roundabout to a wall of applause, ride up onto the pavement and into the finish and get your card stamped. And then you think, done it. <laughs> Randonneurs, in a way, are quite a different breed of cyclists from most other cyclists. Um, what would you say motivates your typical randonneur? A good question. Uh, they like touring. They like the scenery, they like the company of other cyclists. It's really the socialising with like-minded people. And, of course, you keep fit, you see a lot of the country, but the nicer the ride, the more you enjoy it. The nastier the ride, the more satisfaction you get from it afterwards. Will you be doing um, Paris Press Paris yourself this year, Richard? Well, I've done it for the past three times, 
and you try and keep me away from it this time. <laughs> yeah, I'll be there if I qualify, which I sincerely hope to do, and I'll enjoy it every last kilometre of it. That was Richard Phipps of the Long Distance Cycling Association, Ordex UK, talking about getting ready for Paris-Brest Paris. And if you're interested in the idea of long distance cycling, um, you don't have to be cycling 1200 kilometres. Ordax UK organises events throughout the year, uh, starting at 50 kilometres and working all the way up to 1200 kilometres. Uh, the 1200 kilometre events are less frequent than the shorter distances. And information about uh, Ordax UK can be found on their website at www.ordax.uk.net. You're listening to The Bike Show on Resonance 104.4 FM. Um, Now, as I cover my many, many miles on my bike, I frequently find myself contemplating the many mysteries of the universe. And one mystery my mind often returns to is just how do I manage to ride my bike at all? To try and unearth some of the truth behind the physics of cycling, I spoke to Cambridge physicist Dr Helen Chersky, and I began by asking her, how is it that I can cycle off down the road with little more than two thumbprints of rubber holding me to the road? It's not really that hard. There's two interesting things about bikes, and one is staying upright, and that's one problem by itself, and the other problem is how you turn around corners. And that one's a little bit more complicated. But the way you stay upright on a bike is actually the same as the way you stay upright when you're walking. Your brain can adjust very, very quickly. It can feel if you go off balance to one side or the other. And um, it can correct for that. And that's how you stay upright. So So, your brain does most of the work there. So you're constantly falling off, but your brain corrects That's right. Just like when you're walking, you're actually constantly falling over. But your brain's catching it quickly before you notice. And so it's all right. You don't go splat every day of the week. Um, and the bike's basically the same as that and there has been some people have said suggested that there's um, a gyroscopic effect that helps you stay up but that isn't actually true it's true that there is a gyroscopic effect but it's so small that it really doesn't make much difference to how you stay upright on your bicycle so your brain is quite good at helping you go in a straight line so that bit's all right going around corners is a little bit more difficult Um, I don't know if you've ever tried this but try this next time it's safe and you're on your bike on your own away from anything else if you can find a curb um, try cycling a right along down by the curb so you're right next to it and then try turning away from the curb so you imagine this in your head you've got so I'm just on the road there's a pavement next to me and I'm cycling with my wheel almost touching the curb and you'll find that it's actually very very difficult to turn away from the curb and that's because the first thing if I want to turn right on the bike actually I just need a little little turn left and that helps you turn right. And the problem is, if you're cycling right by a curve, you can't make that little, little turn left, and so you can't turn right. So, so there has to be a counter-steer before you there can There has to be that. a counter-steer, that's right. right. That's what it's called. That's the technical name for it. Um, and, and, yeah, so you, you need to start the turn somehow, and that's where all the interesting bits happen. But you actually need... You actually, and you can feel yourself do it. You've probably never noticed, because most people do it ca- intuitively. Once mm. they've learned to ride a bike, you just adjust for it. Um, but... Yeah, you can see yourself doing it. If you're cycling on the straight line, just push the handlebars one way and you'll actually find that you turn the other way after a while. So do any other forces come into play when I'm going fast downhill and taking a sharp corner (laughs) fast downhill? If you've got more courage than me, if you're doing things like that. Um, Yeah, so obviously the speed of the bike affects how easy it is to turn. And the reason for that is if you're going very, very fast um, and you want to make a turn, you only need to lean over a little bit and because you're traveling really fast you'll go around a corner um, 
relatively quickly because you're traveling it's all about the ratio of how far you travel forwards to how far you travel sideways and if you're going really really fast forwards and then just a little lean of the bike and you'll go around a corner but if you're traveling really slowly it's going to take longer for you to get around that corner so when you when and also the other thing about traveling fast on a bike is that it makes it far easier to do that first bit to stay upright and the reason for that is that um when you're if you're high off the ground when you're upright and you're traveling very very fast um, you've got a very long time before you fall over if you're traveling fast and you fall over a little little bit um, you need to adjust for that you need to steer back underneath it and in order to do that you need to be um, you need to travel forwards quite a long way but if you're going fast you travel forwards over that distance relatively quickly and so it's much easier to stay upright if you're travelling fast than if you're travelling slowly. Um, somebody told me that friction is the cyclist's friend. Is that true? This is true, yes, because just think about what would happen if you were trying to cycle on an ice rink. And that's always a good thing. If you want to think about the effect that friction has, let's take it away. And you can see that cycling wouldn't be happening on an ice rink. You'd be like one of those cartoon characters where the legs are going round and round and round and it's not actually moving forwards. And so we need the friction because that um, keeps the wheels on the ground um, and so it keeps the bike going in the same direction because otherwise it could go in any direction you liked. The other thing though that you can have is that you can have too much friction and that's when you get a problem. If you brake with your front brake really really fast the friction with the road will bring that front wheel to a standstill and if there's enough friction if you do it fast enough you'll go right over the handlebars. Um, so some friction is a good thing but not too much. <laughs> Friction's cyclist friend until we fall off. Until you fall off, <laughs> yes. Now, a couple of years ago, you organised an event at the Science Museum which was pushing the capabilities or the possibilities of what's achievable on a bicycle uh, by a human to its absolute limit. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? 2005 was called Einstein Year because um, it's 100 years since Einstein came up with three of his most famous theories and the Institute of Physics in the UK wanted to celebrate that um, and wanted to bring to people's minds that there is actually a lot of physics around us every day in the world um, that people don't think about. And so it was a good, they wanted um, an event that was going to draw that to people's attention. And so what we did was we got a BMX biker, a stunt biker, not, not someone who wasn't trained to do it. Um, and I, decided, I looked at a physics, the physics of a bicycle stunt and how they were going to conduct that stunt and how fast they had to be able to go. Um, and so we designed a bicycle stunt using physics. Um, and then this, uh, this BMX rider, who is Ben Wallace, um, who competes internationally, so he's very good at what he does, completed this stunt. And what the stunt was, if you can imagine, he had um, a ramp, so it had a, a curved ramp upwards, and then there was a flat top that was about six feet off the ground, and then it sloped down on the other side back to ground level. And the stunt was that he cycled up to the curved bit of the ramp as fast as he could, and at the bottom uh, he needed to be going a minimum of 21 miles an hour, we, we worked out. And so he um, rode up the curved part of the ramp, and then by the time he left the ramp, when it when the flat top came, he was up in the air and rotating backwards, so doing a back somersault on a bicycle, um, and it got worse. In the middle of the air, when he was upside down on his bicycle, he sort of folded himself up sideways, so that, um, sort of like folding the jaws of a crocodile together, so his legs came up and his head went down towards his legs and the bike came up, um, which sounds terribly uncomfortable, and then somehow um, he unfolded himself just in time to come round and land on his wheels on the ramp on the downward slope. With a huge thump, it was um, not, it was, 
a bit if you were stood next to it and you weren't expecting it it was a bit of a shock <laughs> but the point is that that gives lots and lots of opportunities for us to talk about there's a lot of physics goes into that and when I worked out the calculations I found that um, Ben was actually a very very efficient cyclist every single little bit of speed that he had was used um, because normally when you do things uh, we can put in a certain amount of energy but only really a small percentage of that is useful but Ben has got good you know his skill is so good that he could use every single little bit of energy that was available to him um, and that meant he could carry out the stunt pretty efficiently and so there's lots of physics that we talked about um, lots of different energies he's got in the air and the effect of spinning things in the air um, and yes and it was a way of highlighting the fact that physics is all around us and it's like a toy you can play with it if you know a little bit about the physics of the world uh, you can poke and prod things and see what happens and change something and see what happens and it's really a constant toy um, it's always there. Physicists are never bored because there's always something that they can be poking and prodding and playing with. Uh, you mentioned there that Ben was a very efficient cyclist. Um, and is it true that cycling is the most efficient form of transport known? I'm told that that is true, yes, and I can well believe it because um, in any form of... Uh, or any way that a human ha can move themselves around... Um, we lose energy. If we're walking along the ground, it takes, actually, we waste a lot of energy just moving our muscles because uh, they generate lots of heat. Um, we have to, every time we take a step, we also have to stop ourselves. Um, and that takes up a lot of energy. But on a bicycle, firstly, if you get going and there's no obstacles and no hills, you'll probably keep going. If you've got a well-oiled bike and all the, you know, all the bearings are in good condition, you'll probably keep going for quite a long time. So that makes it efficient to start with because you only have to get going a bit and you'll probably keep going for a long time. Um, but also, it's a very efficient configuration. It's a very good way of converting human um, muscle power into forward motion because it's a continuous motion pretty much. Um, and there's very little resistance. And yeah, so I think human on a bicycle is the most efficient way of travelling. You were talking about Einstein year, and there are photographs of Albert Einstein on his bicycle, and he's reputed to have said that he came up with his great theory of relativity whilst riding his bicycle. Could he have been inspired by riding his bike? <laughs> it's very hard to confirm or deny, but um, the sort of speed you need to be going at for relativity to, to really apply are so fast that you would have to be a phenomenal cyclist, never mind efficient being a human being on a bike. You would have to be... Um, inhuman to be going that fast basically so um, it's probably not true that the idea of cycling um, uh, inspired him one thing there is though is that when Einstein came up with his great ideas of relativity he was actually very young he was 26 uh, when he came up with the special theory of relativity and then uh, I think he was 36 when he came up with the general theory of relativity. But everyone sees these pictures of him as an old man. And I think the picture you're talking about is when he was in later in life, he was at Princeton University in America. And I think uh, he might have been having a bit of a joke with some journalists one day and he was photographed cycling. And ever since then, there's been this question, was he inspired by riding a bike? Um, so maybe the idea did come to him while he was on a bicycle. But... Uh, I think you have to be you have to be very very far, better than Lance Armstrong by a long way in order to get up to relativistic speeds on a bike. That was Dr. Helen Chersky from Cambridge University explaining some of the physics of riding a bike. All very simple if you uh, don't have to think about it too much. 
And you have been listening to The Bike Show on Resonance 104.4 FM. All details of the items covered on today's show will eventually appear on The Bike Show website at www.bikeshow.blogspot.com at some point during the week, hopefully. And as Jack has been saying for the last few weeks, um, although programmes on Resonance FM are made entirely by volunteers uh, with a passion for their particular area, area of interest, uh, interests which often aren't, uh, don't find an outlet on mainstream broadcasting, Resonance FM does need money to keep in business. Um, there are bills to pay and at the moment Resonance is in something of a deep financial black hole. So if you enjoy The Bike Show or any of the other outputs on Resonance FM, uh, you can find a link on The Bike Show website to enable you to make a donation, small or large, all is welcome. And Kristin, my engineer for today, was uh, telling me earlier that the Resonance FM theatre critic is planning on doing a sponsored swim, so maybe I can have my arm twisted and be persuaded to raise money by... um, getting my Paris Best, Paris Brest Paris attempt sponsored too. Um, and uh, that's about all that we have time for uh, today. Um, Jack, I'm assured, will be back next week and uh, normal service will be resumed. Next up is the clear spot and all that's left for me to say is chapeau and bon route.